Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the teaching project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Lita Frazier, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2002. I'm Dr. Lita Frazier. I teach in the communication department here at Bethel University. I have been at Bethel, this is my 26th year, and I have taught for 51 years. Um, So I was very, very young when I started teaching. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) I believe I am a teacher by calling, not by choice. I believe that the Lord gave me a distinct call to teach. And it is with that in mind that I have, I think, maybe the word is tolerated, some pretty terrible situations, as well as some glorious situations in my years of teaching. When I was a very young child, I said that what I wanted to do when I grew up was to be president of the United States. That was my goal. And my dad, who thought that was hilarious, used to probe me and ask me what I would do if I was president. And of course, I had a lot of great ideas. And then when I was 10 years old, I I had rheumatic fever. And so I was bed fast for, they, they wouldn't let me walk. They wouldn't let me do anything physical for about two years. And my mother tutored me, my mother taught me. But I got to thinking at that time, and I thought, no, this, if I'm gonna be like this for a long time, I, I probably can't be president. So I gave up that idea of being president. The commitment to teaching came much later. Well, not so much, but came later. In our high school, we had one guidance counselor. And she would make appointments with us, and we would go in and meet with her once a semester. So my sophomore year of high school, she called me in, and this was the essence of our interaction. She said, all right, Lita, you have a choice. You can be a secretary, you can be a nurse, or you can be a teacher. Which will it be? And I said, well, do I have to decide now or something to that effect? And she said, yes, what are you gonna be? Well, I said, I'm gonna, I guess, I'm going to be a teacher. All right, she said, That's, that means you have to go to college. Well, I know that, my folks told me that. Okay, that's it, you're gonna be a teacher, you're gonna to go to college. Okay, that's all. Bye. (laughs) So I remember when I walked out of that room, this has been a few years ago because I'm 81 now. When I walked out of that room, I thought, boy, that was quick. That was a big decision to make in just a few (laughs) few seconds in her office. But that started uh, the ball rolling, I guess you would say, in thinking about that. Both of my parents were teachers. My grandfather was a teacher. But I began to realize that that aspect of living, and I was even at that age praying about what I should do and where I should go and what I should be. Um, I never realized until I went to my 50th high school reunion that I was one of two women 
in a class of almost 300 that went to college. None of the other girls did that. And I thought, oh, that's so strange. I didn't know it. I didn't put it all together. So I believe it's a calling. I believe God has put me in a variety of teaching positions that have uniquely prepared me to reach out to other people. I'm married to Philip Frazier. He, we've been married 60 years now. Um, he was a pastor. He was a marriage and family counselor. And he was a professor. Philip changed jobs about through our marriage, probably about every 10 years. I never changed. It was one of the things I had to adjust to. Why is, you know, why is he doing all these things? You stick to one thing. You do it all the way through your life. And Philip would say, how can you stick to one thing? Aren't you bored? No, I'll never be bored with teaching. There's always something new and something different. So that's, that's why I'm here. I was an A-B student. I studied very hard, but that was an expectation of our family. My mother taught, my dad taught, and after we ate our supper, that's what we called it, in the evening we would clear the dishes all together, the four of us, I had a sister. We would then sit down at the dining table, one on each side, and we would study. And my father had to know what we were going to study, that we had a plan, that we had something that we would study. So that's how I learned to study. And that started probably when I was, after I got through the rheumatic fever scare, it started with that time. That was, a, that was something our family did. So that was the beginning of the realization that if I was going to do what I wanted to do, I would need to prep for it. I would need to study. And so I would say I, I, was, I wasn't a straight-A student. That was not important. I, I was an A, B student. If I didn't like the class, <laughs> and this happened in college a number of times, I could just sit, take a C, do enough to get a C and go on. But if it was something that I thought I could really use as a teacher, um, I would give it everything I had. Well, my parents, of course, because I sat in their classes as a visitor from the time I was five. Um, but there were other people. I had a, a woman. And we, I didn't have very many women teachers at that time. Some in the elementary school, but, but usually most of my teachers were men. Um, I had a woman by the name of Margaret Crowley, who was the debate coach and the speech teacher. And she just kind of latched onto me. She found out I wanted to teach. She found it out. She found out I wanted to debate. I didn't know what debating was, but she found that out. And so she helped me. And she was marvelous in the classroom. I remember that about her. She was exciting. You didn't know what she was going to do next. She was not just standing up uh, sage on the stage. She was doing all different kinds of things. Then when I was in college, there was a woman by the name of Margaret Wood. And I was doing a great deal of public speaking then, um, all over the campus, all over the Midwest in, in different situations. And so she was assigned by the, the head of the comm department, or the speech department it was called then. She was my coach. And so I met with her every, every week at least for at least two hours at a time, twice a week, two hours at a time. And she coached me on everything. Um, 
Now, you notice when I'm talking, I'm using my hands. But you'll notice that I don't use them constantly. Because Margaret Wood taught me <laughs> that if you want to use effective gestures, you do them sometimes, and then you let them go. She just didn't tell me that. I practiced it and practiced it. So those two people, the third person that had a tremendous impact on me was when I was working on my first master's degree at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. It was a, he was a man by the name of Ishmael Utley. And he was, <laughs> he was something else. I remember specifically coming to class one day, and I was pregnant at that time, so I was, I was waddling around. I'm a short woman, and I was out to here. And he didn't even seem to realize that, and that's okay. But he would, he was incredible. And one day we walked into class, and it was one of those classes where you had a hundred students and all the, it was graduated seating. And so we walked into class and he was standing on the desk, just standing there. And so he waited until all of us got into the classroom. And of course we were all just kind of wondering, what in the world is this man going to do now? And then he leaned forward and he said, it is a sin to bore students. Then he backed up. He waited. He leaned forward and he said it again. Backed up. Then he leaned forward and he said it again. It is a sin to bore students. <laughs> and then he jumped off the table. And I never have forgotten that. He was also my critic teacher when I was doing my student teaching. And he told me, if you bore this, if you're boring me, I'm going to stand up and holler in the middle of your class. And that scared the pajamas out of him. Because he was, he would have. <laughs> I think. He didn't. But um, I often think about that in the classroom now. In my mind, I can see Ishmael Utley standing on that desk. It is a sin to bore students. Never forgotten. So I would say those three people were the most, besides my parents, were the most influential. Well, when I was in college the first time, it was speech. And I was on the debate team in high school, and then I went to college, and I, I spoke all over, and I debated and everything. <clears throat> and then I got my, my first master's in teaching and uh, did some teaching, but it was sporadic because we were moving around a lot. I decided, I was teaching at Crown College, which was St. Paul Bible College then, and I, <laughs> I realized that I, need, I needed something more. We also were taking foster children in our home. And that was one of the most challenging things I've, I've ever done. Um, so I decided I need to go back to school and get another master's degree. And so I got the catalog from the University of Minnesota and I looked up speech and there was nothing in speech because that was long past. I had been out of, well, what, 30 years? No, 20 years I'd been out of school. Um, so I started at the beginning of the, uh, the catalog and started through trying to find a master's degree that I thought would be compatible with what I wanted to do. And I found, finally, communication. And I read the description and I thought, well, that's, that's okay, I'll do that. And so I called and made an appointment with the uh, dean in the comm department and met with him. It was Ernest Borman who became my advisor for my doctorate. Um, and that's the way I decided. I mean, there was no big calling. There was no big discussion. Um, 
it was not a very scientific way to do it. <laughs> when I think about it now, I, I laugh. But that's the way I got into communication. And I thought, as he said when he interviewed me, that interviewed me, he said that's closely related to, to what you have done before in, uh, in speech and in debate. Um, once I was in, I loved it. I began to understand what it was really about, that it, it broadened so much because the area of family communication became a primary goal of mine to, uh, to work on. Well, I was an excellent public speaker. I had spoken all over the U.S. I, I was so confident I was unbearable as far as my public speaking. So that part, I thought, oh, wow, every day I'm going to give us all these speeches. And I knew I was good at that. What I wasn't good at was just the nitty gritty. Um, although when I worked, when I got my first master's degree, <clears throat> we spent some time talking about planning a class and that kind of thing. But that was long in my past by the time I was at, at Crown College and then at Normandale and then here at Bethel. I really hadn't planned classes. So that, that was kind of a turning point. I could get up, I could do a daily schedule uh, for a syllabus and I could get up and, and uh, lecture. But that's all the farther it went. Uh, I would occasionally meet with students if I was required to do so. <laughs> and at Crown, you were required to do so. But at the other schools, it was not a requirement. <clears throat> so it wasn't until I came to Bethel that I really began to realize that I had to reach beyond what I had been doing. Just being a good public speaker wasn't going to cut it. Well, I am a reader. Uh, I, I'm always been a reader. I read five to six books a, a week uh, along with whatever I read in for my discipline or for my teaching. So then I began to read. I began to get books. I began to read what was um, what was available. And most of this happened when I was at Crown, at Crown College because they gave you nothing, they gave you no help. They, want, they were very firm, of course, in your, your belief system, but, um, that, and that was important. And at Normandale, they were not interested in that. But at Bethel, I, I became very much aware of the fact that I had to do something more than just be a sage on this stage, I had to. So I, I learned. I learned what worked and what didn't work, and I recalled Ishmael at least standing on that stage, and I realized, or on that table, and I realized that there had to be more. I went back through my experience in high school and college, and pulled up in my mind the teachers that were most effective for me, and it didn't take long to pull out. The, the way they re interacted with students on a one-to-one -one basis, the way they planned their classes in a different way than just lecture. And so those things became a very important part. And then, <clears throat> for whatever reason, they asked me to be faculty development co coordinator at Bethel. I had no idea what faculty development coordinator was, but of course I said, yes, I'm glad to. And they sent me all over the U.S. <laughs> uh, you know, learning. And then I was supposed to come home and put it in practice at Bethel. And they didn't realize they were doing it primarily because I didn't know what I was doing and that was the way I learned. First of all, it has to do with who I am. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, 
And I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. Very vivid description or decision for me. So when I was teaching other places, when I taught high school, when I taught at Normandale, I was very aware of the disconnect between who I was and the setting in which I was in. And I could function, and I think I did quite well. But I, I wanted to be somewhere where I would not be afraid or hesitant to talk about my faith or to listen to what the students had to say. So when the Bethel job came up, I'd only been at Normandale a couple of years. When I heard about it, I talked to the Lord about that and I said, I, should I go for that? And the Holy Spirit said, yes, go, you'll get it. And so I made application. There had never been a woman in the Department of Speech at Bethel, and they made that very clear. And they made it clear, the faculty of that department made it very clear that I was not what they needed or wanted. And I had tremendous expectations for Bethel. Um, I probably expected the university, it was a college then, to give me more than they could. Uh, the department was a mess. Uh, I'd been, he, they did not want me, they did every, the, the men did everything they could to keep me from being hired. Um, But George Brush Harbor decided that, told them that they would either hire me or they wouldn't get anyone. <laughs> and then I'd only been here about six months when there was a huge blow up in the department. A and one man was fired and the other man had to take a leave for other, for family reasons. And I was in charge. It scared the pajamas out of me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what it meant, really, although I'd gone to a faith-based college. I didn't know what it meant to be a teacher in this kind of environment. So I, I had to learn <laughs> through a lot of thought, prayer, um, because I, I realized that that I was coming at it from the wrong way. I was saying, what are you going to do for me? Rather than, what can I do in this situation to bring some peace, to bring some closure to some really rugged, ishy kinds of things, and, and to, to grow the department. Um, and I started chairing the department then, as I said. And so it was a learning thing for me. I'm not sure what I expected to Bethel to, for Bethel to do to me, or for me, when I came here. I knew I didn't want another Crown College experience. Um, and I don't need to talk about that. <clears throat> but I think I learned as I was here what it meant to be in this environment with these people sharing our faith in unique ways and then reaching out to the students that we had. Uh, Bethel has changed tremendously, but in not in that part. I still feel that Bethel, as a university, reaches out to me and helps me personally and 
faith-wise. That's how I came here. It was uh, <laughs> it was a rough ride the first couple of years, but I never once thought I'm going to leave. Never. I thought, okay, Lord, you certainly put me here. I <laughs> And it's to show me what what I need to do. Um, but it was it was a rough ride. Did I like it? Not. I did not love the place like I do now. I tolerated it until I could get, with the help of the Holy Spirit, my feet firmly under me and get some notion of what I was about. I think one of the harshest things I had to learn was grading because I seldom gave A's in my classes. And the students tell me I'm still that way, that <laughs> they just don't look at my grade books. <laughs> By the way, I have all my grade books from Bethel, uh, about 35 of them from the first year I taught. Um, that's just by the way. <laughs> but anyway, it, uh, I've grown in so many ways. I think one of the things that happened was um, I was asked to direct, oh, I can't believe this, uh, the first grant that Bethel had from the McKnight Foundation about diversity. I had no background in that, other than my own experience. But most of the institutions I had taught in, that was in, that would have been 88, I guess, or 89. Most of the institutions I, I had taught in had been all white. And we had had a number of situations at Bethel that were really ugly. And they asked me if I could do it, and of course, oh yes, I'm, yeah, I can, I can. And then I remember sitting in my office and thinking, what do I do? We just got a handful of teachers that are, are people of color, and it seemed like fewer students. But the man who was the, um, the dean there, and I can't remember, I can see his face, I can't remember his name. But I finally went to him and said, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, we'll teach you. And so they sent me to Boston College, they sent me to Harvard, they sent me to St. Mary's in, San, in, in California, and somewhere in Texas. And I learned. It was marvelous. And I changed. Significantly, I changed. Uh, and the, the grant was for two, three years. I can't, I think it was, you know, it was about three years. But that was, during that time I also went to Israel with a group of faculty from all over the U.S., which was a, another turning point in my learning and my appreciation of Bethel. You better not say too much bad to me about Bethel when, I, when I'm around. <laughs> I'm teasing you now. Uh, I, I see Bethel as a significant and important step of my life. I guess that's why it's so hard for me to leave. <laughs> I, my family teases me and says I'm going to teach till I am using a walker. <laughs> I have a responsibility early on in a class to let the students know where I come from. So that means at some time I will share my personal story about coming to Christ 
and something about my journey. I, I am not hesitant to use scripture in the classroom. And we're teaching calm, especially when you're teaching family communication. You get into all of the issues concerning roles in the family and how that function or doesn't function. Uh, I, I am very candid in sharing that with what I believe, what I hold to. Um, usually I do the very nitty-gritty part of that um, in an audio tape the students can listen to and listen to again and listen to again. And then I set a time in the class where they can ask questions. I do that. I, I just finished teaching uh, uh, gender calm, and the students listened to three uh, audio tapes I had. And then they brought their questions in, and I divided them into groups, and they generated questions for me. They put their questions together. And then we had uh, a discussion in the class with those questions. So it's a very much a, f a f focal part of my teaching that I don't preach. I don't, I listen <laughs> a lot, but it, it is the bedrock of my teaching. Um, I, I think that's pretty much how I would say it. it. It's always there. It's always part of what I'm doing. It's the essence of what any student is going to do. It's the basis. Whether you're going to go into the business, or you're going to go into law, or you're going to, into the sciences, or wherever, it, it's the basis. And certainly, it is a basis of a good family, however you define that. <clears throat> so it, it runs through everything. As I laugh with my students sometimes, I say it's like diarrhea. It just goes through everything. <laughs> and they don't know whether to laugh or not, but anyway. <laughs> um, it's, I think um, it's a necessary part. I don't know what's gonna happen with the department here. But, and I don't mean to be cavalier about this, but it's not my decision now. <laughs> um, but about, I've been here since 82, about 87 or 88, St. Olaf University disbanded their comm department and took the pieces of that department and put them in the various disciplines. And when that happened, I thought, oh, that's marvelous. I didn't say that to anybody very much. <laughs> I thought it was marvelous because I thought that's the essence of what calm is. And so then one of the men from our department, Wayne Hensley, would go to St. Olaf and he, and he trained those, those teachers in the various departments how to fold the communication pieces in that would be helpful for them. So I'm not, I am not one to say every school should have a comm department. I think it depends on how big the school is, what the other majors are, and how they can how they can work that out. So I'm when I hear about school like Biola disbanding their their comm department, I'm I'm concerned about that. But if they if they fold those pieces back in to other other aspects, then I think it's going to be all right. I think it's very important. I think it's. Um, Probably students aren't going to get real rich working with that major. 
I never, never have, but I've been gloriously happy. <laughs> I have one of my very best friends lives in um, Oregon, and she has two sons, she and her husband, and they are, one is a business major and one's a science major. They have never had any comm courses at all. They have had limited, if any, humanities courses. They are marvelous in their majors, but they are not effective communicators. They, they have no sense of history. I, I know this because I've been around. They have no sense of history. Um, and I can usually be with a young person who's graduated, listen to them just a short time and tell you whether or not they've had that, that depth of learning. I think it's essential for a good, rounded education. At the same time I say that, I'm fully aware because I read, I'm fully aware with what's, hap with what's happening with the humanities across the United States. And uh, I think that's scary. I think in 20 years, if it takes that long, they were going to try to, I may not be around then, <laughs> um, they're going to try to put it back in. How are we going to put it back in? How are we going to put it back in? It is essential. It makes the whole person, or the person whole, whichever way you want to say it. I'll tell you this by, by telling you about the three, three books that I read last summer. Okay. <clears throat> I read a book called... Um, Soft Professors, written by two English women. Wonderful book. I, I laughed and I cried all the way through it. And I'm, I, I'm reading it again. And, and they talk about that whole thing. It's an art. It's a craft. It's a science. It's, um, so they look at it as all three. Then I read another one, the title I cannot rem remember, but it was a very, very well-ordered scientific study uh, about what happens in the classroom and what kind of testing you should do and what kind of... And I read that and I thought, mm-hmm, okay, yeah, yeah, that's okay. I could agree with that. Uh, and then I read a book called The Rise by Sarah Lewis, who is now teaching at Harvard. And a young woman who went through a really dark time, young black woman went through a really dark time in her life, seeking, seeking, how do you bring these things together? Why, why can't education be more artistic, be more creative, more beautiful maybe is another word for it. And I've, I've read her book several times. Uh, I read books in a funny way, so, but that's another story at another time. <laughs> but anyway, she looks at the artistic aspect. And when I read those books, along with some others, I thought, yeah, okay, there was, it's all of that. It's all of that. Uh, I returned papers to my students in Family Con, their research papers, on Tuesday. And they, they had a very extensive assignment. And they had some of them wanted to use all studies, um, scientific studies, about family and their ad, ad, ad nauseum. You go on and on. You can read everything you want to from a scientific point of view. 
Then I had other students who just wanted to do interviews <laughs> with people from families. And, and when you're studying family comm, that too is valid. That's, that's very valid. But it's not perceived as a scientific study if you do it that way. And then other students, being the age in which we live, wanted to look at videos and TED Talks, and, and they wanted to get their information from there. And my challenge was for them to do all of those and some others. And um, they were not too happy with me about that, but I finished the papers and they did pretty well. <laughs> it's not a, as I've said before, it's not a, a sage on the stage for me. It's kind of a muddle in a puddle. Um, <laughs> and that sounds crazy. But I'm teaching Family Con this afternoon. And I've made my notes. I know what we're going to do. And it's going to be kind of a muddle in the puddle. And the puddle is huge right now because they've just finished their research. They know all of this stuff. And they really know it. They're going to do it. But I put them into family units. So we have a blended family and we have a, a two-parent biological family and we have a single-parent family and we have an extended family with grandpa moving, living in. And each of the students represents a role in that family unit and they have family name. And so they're going to, in their inter, I, they do interactions in their interaction today, they're going to do, they're going to celebrate a birthday. Because we're studying about rituals, we're studying about rules, we're studying about, that's an early part of understanding family. And so, I don't know, for me, and a really good class is kind of like that, a, a muddle in a puddle. And the, and the puddle for family is huge. And we muddle around over here, and then we move over here, and then we move over here. I like that metaphor. I also like the metaphor that uh, is used, oh, by that wonderful Quaker writer, where he makes fun of the uh, sage on the stage, and then he talks about the teacher being in the middle, or the professor being in the middle, with the students in a circle around, and they are they are pulling and and um, inter using interchange all around. I like that. I don't know if that's a metaphor exactly. I guess those two are kind of the strange ones that I would. I don't see myself as a preacher. I don't see myself as a counselor. I don't see myself as in those kind of metaphoric stages. But if you walked into my class and sat down, you would probably think, my word, this is mass confusion. Because I'm all over the classroom. I try to be in family, by each family unit, at least three times in a class. I'm all over the classroom. There's, there's a lot of noise. Uh, and I had this little holler that I do when I want everybody to shut up, and they do it. And I think about that classroom now, and the classroom that I will have this afternoon, and when I started at Bethel. And when I started at Bethel, I lectured straight. Lecture, 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 lecture. And I do lecture some, but I'm careful about the time. And I know that if you have huge classes like you do, what I'm saying to you would seem like mass chaos, but but it's the way that I that it works best to use a variety of approaches. I think, and um, so it, I guess it would depend what the metaphor is, what time of the class you walked in, what day, where we were in the semester. Um, but I don't have an overarching metaphor, no. Given the time we're living, my first expectation is that the phones disappear 
and if they come out again, I call that student down by name before the whole class. Now that may shock you, but I do. Um, I expect them to come prepared. That is a constant challenge now. There was a time when I was teaching at Bethel when I said, if I said to students, okay, on Thursday, we're going to discuss chapter seven, particularly pages blah, 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 blah. So you'd be ready for that discussion. And I knew they would do it. That's not true now. And I don't think it's just our department. <laughs> but I asked my students on Tuesday, I said, how many of you have read the, the three chapters? I assigned you. One person raised her hand. And uh, inside of me, that makes me angry. But <sighs> anger isn't going to do any good. Uh, so I just said, well, the rest of you have a lot of work to do before, before Thursday because you'll need to be aware of those chapters. And they've been assigned in the syllabus since the second week of class. Students have changed. It's not their fault completely. <laughs> but it's, um, I expect them to come to be prepared. I expect them to contribute. I don't use PowerPoint. Is that what it's called? PowerPoint. I've never used PowerPoint. Um, it's fine if people do. I don't. That's their business. But I don't. Uh, if I'm going to use anything visual and audio, it will be very short and to the point and it will support what we're talking about, not give a whole um, summary of, of the class. Um, I try to spend time with each of my students one-on-one. -on -one. So I set aside at least one class period and maybe two when I'm, I, they make appointments with me and then come in and talk to me. I, I think that is extremely important. Once in a while I'll run into a student and say, no, I don't need to do that. And I think, hmm, okay, we'll see. <laughs> but, I, but I try to do that. I would hope they would say, I can remember and I put into practice some of the things Dr. Frazier taught me. I would hope they would say she was one tough teacher. I would hope they'd say we had fun in our class. Because I like to laugh with my students. I do strange things. I, I tell them stories and then they don't understand them and then I tell them a joke and they don't get the joke and then we have to have a discussion about those, I mean, those kinds of things. So I think, you know, that probably in that order. I think the issue of faith, if my students could say, you know, we knew what she believed. She was straight with us about what she believed. Um, that would be... I hear from students all the time. You know, uh, there's, there's a, you almost have to divide my teaching at Bethel into two parts. The first part is before the master's program that we did, and the last part is since then. So we started the master's program in 97, and then it went on for about 10 years, and then they cut it. And, um, I really stopped lecturing full-time after I had been in the master's class.
classroom because uh, I didn't I didn't lecture there. I did short lectures, but that had a profound influence on the way I taught in the undergraduate after I was teaching there. And so my master's students and the students in the BA program would have a different overall vision than the students that came before the master's program. Number one, read. 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 <laughs> Get into books, understand what's being written. Read history, read current stuff. Read stuff you love, read stuff you hate. Read mysteries, read poetry, read, you know, read. I couldn't teach if I were not a reader. I think that's second pray. And maybe we should put it the other way, I don't know. <laughs> um, but read and pray, oh. I don't have enough wisdom to, I have, I have 72 students now in two classes. I do not have the wisdom to answer their needs. But through the Holy Spirit's work in my life, I can reach out to them. So that praying is, and, and that, that sounds so easy, but it's not. Uh, so read and pray or pray and read. And third, I would say, do something different. Try something new. Don't get stuck in a grave or a hole, or however you could say it. But try different things. I'm trying this semester in my family comm class a method, a process, that I never, ever have tried. It's brand new to me. Is it going to work? I don't know, I think. Um, I don't have the time to 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 um, explain it, but but those three things I think are extremely important. Um, oh, I guess another thing is, as much as possible, learn your students' names, their first names. You don't have to learn first and last name. And that gets I have found that gets extremely hard. When, when you're 81, it's not as easy to remember the names of, of the students. I'm struggling with that this year, and I hate it because I'm used to making a connection. And uh, what Philip and I have been reading this book about uh, Einstein uh, or understanding Einstein. Are, are you familiar with it? It is a book that talks about memory and about building a memory palace. And so we've been reading it and laughing about it because we think this is what we need. We need, to, we need to have a lot of memory palaces so we can remember. So I guess that's what I would say. Don't be afraid to be who you are. I think I sense in my students and have for the last three to five years this fear that they are not acceptable, that some, something's wrong, they're not acceptable. And um, makes me very, very sad. But they are whom the Lord has created for whatever reason. And I think I would say, I'm trying to build readers. I, I keep telling my students, what are you reading now? I'll ask them, what are you reading now? 
maybe there'll be three or four readers, maybe, in the, um, in the class. That concerns me. Um, I, I am an anti, <laughs> an anti-phone faculty person. They tease me about that, but uh, that, I think that goes without saying. They're not going to use them in my class without, without repercussions. But I fear for them. When I realized that out of my, class, my family class of 27 students, I have more than five students who are on very, very high doses of medication. And last semester, it was just shocking. We know this because of disability services. And I, that is scary to me. Do they need the medication? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not that kind of a doctor. But that, that is very scary. Um, although I don't say anything to them about it. I'd like to, <laughs> but I don't. After reading Slove Professors, it's just changed a little bit. I think I would say less committee work, more opportunity to work on how, how you teach, what you do in the classroom. That's what it's all about. It's not about, I mean, other things are necessary, but I, I, when I went on phase retirement, the one reason I did it is because I didn't have to be on any more committees. And it's not that I don't love my colleagues, but the longer I teach, the more, the, the more there is to do, to grade papers, to keep, keep changes in the classroom that will be exciting for me and exciting for the students. Um, there is a hilarious part in the slow professors that talks about this study that was done by a group of, I don't know what, who they were. This was in, in the UK, a group of people that decided that, that they could lay a plan out so that teachers would have more time on their hands. And so they wrote this hilarious part about, um, you should keep, you should keep a record. You should keep a chronicle record of everything you do for every five-minute period of the day. And then they would take that, and they would go through it and show you how to. And I laughed, and I cried, and I hee-hawed. Philip thought I was going crazy, and I thought, sure, come, yeah, do that. Come along with me from the time I start in the morning, or you, until I crawl in bed at night and go through my day and tell me what I should leave out or what I should do differently. Now, that is not to say that everybody here does it beautifully. None of us do it perfectly. We're not Jesus. But... Um, I think there needs to be more respect overall on how faculty do their work. As we've expanded with more people, not necessarily from academe here, who have no notion of what it means to teach. In, in colleges and universities. I think it has become more difficult. And we need to, to, we need to respect as an institution how you do your work and how I do my work and encourage that. <laughs>